so I spent six weeks building this whole medical office suite on the floor of Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco, cabinet-wise. So then I hire the guys. We go to install. They moved the whole wall that I was supposed to mount these cabinets in. Nobody bothered to call us. Six weeks of work. There was nowhere to put them. There was no wall. I'm like, what happened here? <laughs> right? So I'm talking with the job. So, oh, no, you didn't get the memo? Oh, my God. So I literally had a meltdown. The memo, not the email. Right, right. The Do memo. You, nobody told you? It was such a colossal waste of time. You know, you, you end up bleeding from making cabinets at that level. You know, a whole floor's worth. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I called Brad right up. Dude, is that job still available? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Fuerza Inside the Mind, the region athlete. I'm your host, Mig, a.k.a. Grasshopper, a.k.a. Chapolin. The first in a series of legends of the sport, our guest today, Steve Gravenitis, brings a color and flair and tenacity and ability for storytelling that's, that's rivaled by few. It's no secret that People today read much less than they used to and rely on video and sound airwaves coming to you. So this podcast is beginning to look back at some of the founders of the sport, some of the influencers. We've got a great series of guests lined up talking about the birth of mountain biking, the overlap of road, the evolution of gravel. We'll talk about parts, wheels, what's changed, what hasn't changed, what's come back. But Gravy's unique in this. So Gravy grew up, was raised, born in Inverness. He also spent time living in Chicago. He's the son of legendary blues musician Nick Gravenitis. A frequent guest in the house was Janis Joplin. Nick tells stories about his mom sewing clothing for Janis. The birth of mountain biking, if you read Charlie Cunningham's book, about repack and the birth of mountain biking you'll be familiar a little bit about the nexus and overlap of rock and roll of the 60s and 70s and mountain biking stories of grateful dead and mountain biking and birthplace of tamalpais so gravy grew up uh there at the um the crib of mountain biking and would spend his Days hitchhiking with his buddies and his BMX bike to the mount, top of Mount Tam where they do 8-10 laps down Mount Tamalpais. And when he got his first break as a mechanic, he, with his team Tam, were traveling. Uh, he had been an employee at Sammy Hagar's bike shop in Sausalito and traveled out to the first mountain bike world championship in Durango where he quickly found himself wrenching for some of the top pros and didn't race. Um, so I hope you enjoy our chat. Gravy as a mechanic for Yeti, Schwinn, Volvo Cannondale, and Marin. Wrenched for the legends. Kamikaze and world champion winner Jimmy Deaton, Miles Rockwell, Missy Giovi, Allison Sidor, Tinker Juarez. The list goes on and on. Gravy will tell a great story about pining for his first Richie, his first Steve Potts, the 
characters of Gary Fisher and Charlie Cunningham. Anyways, pour yourself a cold one, a cup of coffee, a guayaki, whatever you need to last through this. It goes on and on and on. Two hours of <laughs> storytelling. Sit back and enjoy episode of Fuerza Inside the Mind of the Ridden Athlete with the legend Steve Gravy Gravenitis. Steve Gravenitis. Yes, Miguel. How are you doing, brother? Hey, I'm doing good. Good to see you up here in the North Coast again. It's always a pleasure to come up here. You know, Steve, I've been wanting to sit down with you for a couple of years and, and have this chat and... Uh, I had to stop our stories early because as soon as we get together, the stories start rolling. So for the people listening to this, just know this is going to be a long one. Okay. Yeah, it's good good having you, Meg. We've been together so many times at all your events now, but we haven't had time to have a little chit-chat, so this is nice. Now, no, not for everyone, but for those who have been riding bikes for a long time, the name Steve Gravenitis has a bit of a legendary sound to it. Bring us back a little bit. Where, where did it all, where did biking start for you? Okay, let's go back into yesteryear. Yes, uh, nicknamed Gravy from my last name, Gravenitis, and my dad, uh, the ridiculous Nicholas Gravenitis. Um, his nickname was Gravy, so I was a little Gravy for quite a long time, and finally, you, my dad said, okay, you could be a Gravy too, so I'm no longer a little Gravy, I'm actually a Gravy, a full-fledged Gravy. And... Um, let's see, for me, um, bicycling started, my first consciousness of it was at Richard Schwinn shop in Chicago. And I was growing up with my grandmother in single digit age, you know, lusting after Schwinn pea pickers back in the day and stingrays and, and eventually got a stingray junior from Richard Schwinn shop, Evergreen Park, Illinois. And they also carried the full range of Schwinn's, so all the way up to Paramount's. So the whole time I was looking at these bikes I could never afford, right, up on the wall that people pretty much never bought back in Chicago, except for rarely they would sell a few. And they started, my bike lust was started at the Schwinn shop in Chicago. And when I moved, you know, my dad was on the road touring. My dad's a a uh, world-famous blues musician, extraordinaire monster, really, blues monster. If you've seen the Blues Brothers movie, it was based after him and Paul Butterfield and the original Blues Brothers from Chicago, Illinois, and their blues mobiles and stuff. So you're born, you were born in Chicago? Actually, no. no. I was born in Inverness, California, in a hippie commune up on Mount Vision in Inverness. And I think everybody was living under one P.O. box at the time, like 12 or 15 of us in hippie commune in the hills above Inverness. So West Marin is in my blood. Marin General Hospital is my, you know, birthplace. But while my dad was touring with his bands, Janis Joplin and Electric Flag and all the major bands... I grew up with my grandmother, uh, going to elementary school in Chicago, and didn't come out to Marin County till I was 11. And what an eye-opening experience that was. Let's see, 1973, 74, and that's when BMX was just hitting. 
So BMX hit hard in the mid-70s, and it hit Marin County as well. And one of the big haunts, uh, BMX tracks we used to go to was in Tiburon. It's called Blackie's Pasture. And I used to go hang out there as a kid watching BMXers jump and um, wanted to jump too, you know. So I ended up, you know, getting knobbier tires and better handlebars and better everything and breaking bike after bike after bike, jumping it. Until one of my friends uh, in Mill Valley, friend's mother, said, I'm tired of looking at you guys. I'm going to drive you up Mount Tam. You guys could find your way home. So that was my first ride on Mount Tam. We were totally lost. Coming down railroad grade, right? The easiest way down Mount Tam. Lost little kids, 11, 12 years old. Little billies, you know, coming down the mountain, getting sideways. Um yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off for intervening for, because some people think about the clunkers and repack coming from you know the Schwinn bikes, but the overlap from BMX I think is oftentimes over over, over overlooked. It's completely overlooked, and I should interject the direct connection between BMX and mountain bikes is a man called Mert Lawwill from Tiburon, California, who went to build bigger, a bigger clunker for himself because his son, Joe, who went on to race and is still racing to this day, um, downhill mostly, Joe Lawwell, was so Mert can have a bike to ride while Joe was doing BMX and his 20-inch BMX wheels, Mert couldn't ride 20-inch. Right? So was, did he build a 24, 26-inch? Yeah, inch. Mert, I sh- I'm sorry, Mert Lawwell was AMA, Grand National Champion Motorcyclists. He was in the movie On Any Sunday, super into it, built all his own motorcycle frames and got together with Terry Knight to build the first Pro Cruisers, which were... Um, the first mountain bikes ever made or sold. And that was probably around 80, 1980. Mert was from Tiburon. Blackie's Pasture was from Tiburon. But the mountain bikes, clunkers, were ridden on Mount Tam just one city away. So that melding of the two between the Schwinn shop in Mill Valley, which was clunkers, pretty much Schwinn, And the Cove Bike Shop, the original Cove Bike Shop from Tiburon, California, run by the Kosky families, um, they were pretty much the BMX Blackie's Pasture Shop. Their sons, Eric and Don, made the first, uh, another one of the first mountain bikes, good mountain bikes, dedicated mountain bike, called the Trailmaster. And the Trailmaster came out of the Cove Bike Shop in Tiburon before the Specialized Stump Jumper, before any of that, was Mert Lawwell with his Pro Cruiser. And then the Cove Bike Shop, the Koski's going, we can make a better Pro Cruiser. And they made the Trailmaster. Straight blade forks, 
fully, you know, moto, jumping worthy, Cooks Brothers front ends. And on those bikes, was anyone looking to have gears? I imagine with the BMX background, they're just thinking one gear. I know with the clunkers, then they're saying, how can we integrate the shifting that we have on our road bikes? Right. And back then, it was double front chain ring. Wide space, five-speed rear freewheels, 1438-tooth rear freewheels. So he actually had some range, but none of the derailers had clutches or anything, so everything just fell off constantly. But you're right. In the beginning was coaster brakes on Mount Tam. You know, black steel ruled the mountain. I mean, that it was strictly downhill. Coaster brake, if you had a Moro coaster brake, you didn't have to repack it every run. If you had a Bendix coaster brake, pretty much every ride you had to put grease in them. Now tell you about the frame. So we're in your shop, we'll walk around a little bit and you could point things out for, sure. for people to listen to. But you had a couple of frames you're calling the 1938s, I think, right? right. What is it? What it, I mean, that obviously means something to you. What, what is that? Right, and I this kind of dates myself. But back in the day... Um, Schwinn cruisers were held in the highest regard for coming down Mount Tam. They had the proper angles, proper wheelbases, proper pretty much everything, except they were heavy sleds. Um, Joe Breeze, who went on to make the Breezer mountain bike, this is now we're progressing a little bit. Joe Breeze decided to use modern contemporary frame tubing to make basically a better pro cruiser, a better, yes, a pro cruiser from Koski's, right? So he, but they mimicked the Schwinn angles, 70, 70 degree parallel, low bottom bracket, like sub 11 inch bottom brackets, and laid back. So long, low, and laid back was all about that. The triple L, right? Right, well, when you're on the rear brake on a coaster brake, you're leaning with all your weight <laughs> right. on that brake. It's great, because you can hold on the handlebars like, all oh, hell, right, and just lean back for your brakes. It was a total art. Sometimes you didn't quite nail it perfectly. And that's when front brakes started to become more prevalent as people just weren't handling on coaster brakes. They needed more braking. And then they needed more gearing. And then it just goes on and on and on, you know, from that progression. But basically, Blackie's Pasture, BMX meets Mount Tam, Black Steel, Strictly Downhill, you know. So at that time, uh, was you were getting driven up to the top. So back up, you're on a BMX bike. Right. And who was shuttling? Who started shuttling you? That's my friend's mom. My friend Guy Crow went on to be a Mill Valley policeman for decades. His mom... Just to get rid of us. Where would, he drop, where would she drop you off? She'd drop us off at the East Peak parking lot, right at the tippy top, right by the bathrooms up there. And then you rally East Peak. And we'd come down Railroad at Railroad first. at the time. And we didn't yeah, know okay. Eldridge, the backside. Uh -huh. Oh, the backside. The Fairfax years. side. Yeah. Because there was a difference between Fairfax and Mill Valley. And, and you understand sure. back in those days, if you're going around by bike, there's a big difference geographically to get from one side to the other. Right? For sure. We, we kind of had a rivalry going back then. We had the West. Western Slope crew, you know, from Mount Tam to the beach, Mount Tam to the beach, 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 Mount Tam to the beach. And the backside, we call them backside guppies. Excuse me, everybody back there, but we call them the backside guppies. 
And they were actually way fitter than us. And they would ride up the mountain because they had no choice to ride from Fairfax up the mountain or San Anselmo or San Rafael. They had to come up. They didn't have a road. You could just hitchhike right from the 2 a.m. club right up to the top. Most everybody was going to the beach. So, you know, we'd have 10 rides a day as kids hitchhiking. You know, 10 Mount Tam runs a day. I guess it was getting up to the, up to the mountain down railroad people from fairfax were having to either ride it the alpine dam loop maybe wasn't a thing or they come up Eldridge mostly they might do a lakes loop like lake lagunitas and then wasn't there a stinson crew as well that dropped down to the bolina side or is that well, they not as would, but they the fairfax is very lucky to have many different zones they could ride in you can go up the easy way, like behind the school, uh, the old railroad grade by Loma Alta. Did you call that the easy way to Mount Tam? No, the easy way from Fairfax to ride, easy loop. So they could go up the old railroad grade from Fairfax side, go up Loma Alta and come back down. That was pretty easy. But Charlie Kelly um, started the, the Thanksgiving turkey ride way back as a counter to the Thanksgiving road ride which was first in the 60s and 70s. Everybody would ride road on Thanksgiving. Charlie Kelly and and Gary Fisher and Joe Breeze decided to take everybody on the Pine Mountain Loop, which they called the Appetite Seminar back then, which is still going on today. Every Thursday, you and 500 of your closest friends can go ride one of the harder loops around, the Pine Mountain Loop, which is 20 miles of, you know, painful love, all the way around the mountain. But us on the Mill Valley side, we hitchhiked our brains out, you know. They and they kinda held it against us, the backside gups, because, you know, God, you're hitchhiking again. I'll be up the mountain and you'll still be hitchhiking, you know. And they, so how old were you when you're doing you said you moved to in back to interest at eleven, but you weren't eleven when you were doing this. No, I was hitchhiking that was freshman year of high school, I was thirteen. And we were fully rogue, you know. And what was, were you riding? What bike were you riding? I was, back then I was riding, boy, what was I riding? A Wards Hawthorne, 1938 Hawthorne, which I do believe I showed you uh, just earlier. I'd broken the fork. It's a new fork on there. But uh, all oh, right, we start with the question: like, what made that Schwinn so special? The right, coveted so, thirty-eight. Let's, right. let's we, so, we digress. You were looking up at my rafters as I pointed to my thirty-eight Hawthorne on the ground, going, "Look at that!" And that was my old cruiser. But up on my wall are two nineteen thirty-eight Schwinn Excelsior DX frames, which are the coveted of the old Schwinn Excelsior cruiser mountain bike frames that Joe Breeze built his breezers off of basically the blueprint off of the Schwinn DX Excelsior. I have two of them hanging for a full retrograde in the garage for my for my older years. I, I need a project. You know, I got the 38s, and I should point out the Hawth, those are Schwinn's. The, the Hawthorne that I ride, the Montgomery Ward's Hawthorne, is still together from 1938. And back when we were racing cruisers... Solid down, steel? Right when we were racing cruisers down the mountain, we had a thing about pre-war steel. 
right? You could get a newer Schwinn, right? The 50s and 60s Schwinns that have the, you know, the curved tubes, you know, that we call triple top tube has two little top tubes curving and then one curved big top tube. The older pre-war steels had just two top tubes that would come off and a down tube. And they were totally different and they were coveted by us because they were stronger. So besides just the date, in terms of the manufacturing, how did manufacturing change? This is more of a history channel thing, but right. pre-war obviously is, is the date of World War II, but in terms of manufacturing, did the weld or the actual type of the steel fabrication yeah, change? No, it's, that's funny you mentioned that. It all changed. Um, in the original, they used uh, two different types. One, it's like a... a um, like when you see steam guys or old building guys putting in hot rivets into the building, you know, they put a hot rivet in and they'd pound the rivet in during it's hot and they would weld like that too, which was like a, which was like a forge kind of weld process. It was pretty brutal. But they'd also do fillet brazing. Like you see on a nice Richie's and stuff, you'd see fillet, beautiful, smooth fillet welds everywhere. So most of the bike was fillet weld, except for the bottom bracks, which was like this forged, hard, like forged weld. And they would use, they would stamp the dropouts and then braze them in the back in the 30s, right? And then stuff got older, you know, more recent in date, the 50s and 60s. Schwinn started to not manufacture all their stuff in their main Chicago buildings. Started to outsource more and more stuff um, like Ashtabula forks and stems and uh, from, uh, I do believe that's in Ohio and they'd start to get stuff from the east and then um, pretty much in the 70s we had a big bicycle boom called Bike Centennial happened in the 70s 1976 to correspond with the bicentennial of our country so they had a bike centennial too and 10 speed you know what they call 10 speed but road biking just took off at that point touring especially like let's tour across the country so touring um Basically, you know, and road riding basically expanded the Schwinn realm beyond our country. And then things started to get mass produced overseas. Schwinn no longer made stuff. They approved stuff, right? Schwinn approved. And uh, God, I love my old Schwinn shop. I used to scavenge in the dumpster there for tubes that I could repair, tires that still had life on. John, the owner, would take take all his young Groms under their under his wing, and he had tools that he would use. You know, they were welded to a chain outside, and you could use tools outside their shop. So we'd come down the mountain and like scavenge a tire and a tube. Oh, I blew up my stuff. Let's go to the swing shop, you know, and go hang out there. And the ironic thing is. Fast forward into the mid-90s, and I ended up being a professional mechanic for the Schwinn mountain bike racing team. And it's something I hold, I covet to this day, is all my Schwinn racing, like aprons. I have a flag in back, Schwinn racing. I was Schwinn racing, right? So to come from the mountain, scavenging in the dumpster from Schwinn, to so actually getting paid by them. As we'll get to those stories. So how did you get, great how did you get from your, your freshman in high school, hitchhiking, right. 
probably saved your life having something to do and stay busy, <laughs> keeping you out of trouble, mostly out of trouble. Yes. Um, those years between then and becoming uh, a professional mechanic, do you stayed in Marin? What what was the what was the path? Okay, well that's a pretty big jump. Like I said, my dad was a famous blues musician. Um, he had a many bands in the Bay Area, and they they toured all the time. So I was pretty much a free range kid. So I would go hitchhike all day and come back at night and do the same and do the same, especially in summer. It was never ending. So I ended up working on my bike because basically broke, right, kid? And John, the guy, the owner of the swing shop at the time, would let me use tools and scavenge parts. So I ended up doing that for my friends as well. And we'd go, all of us, we'd go behind the Schwinn shop and just fix our bikes and literally and buy stuff from the the shop at the same time and put them on our bikes outside. And I did that for years and years. And um, let's see. So my first 26-inch bikes were in high school. 20-inch was Blackie's Pasture. That was late junior high school. But high school came. Bigger wheels came with it. We started to get adventurous and go riding Mount Tam basically all day. Like I was saying, 10 runs on the mountain, that's, you know, 20,000 feet of downhill a day and on old Schwinn's. And eventually the backside guppies got to us and conned us into riding up the mountain eventually. And I, I still remember the day trying to hang with those guys on a real ride up the mountain. So who were you riding with? Back I was in riding those days? with Joe Murray, uh, ex Norba national champion, uh, Jackie Phelan at the time, Gary Fisher, who was still in the rock and roll world. So he still kind of meshed with the Grateful Dead and my dad's group. So he was kind of a rock and roll crossover there, Gary Fisher. And but we we would meet up with them. We wouldn't go on rides with them because they were just too rad and they were older. Right? Charlie Kelly was a vet, you know, and these guys were ass kickers, you know, and we were just young grom little Billy, you know, little hippie kids from the hills, you know, and we held them in the highest regard. But eventually as we were hitchhiking, like I said at the bottom, they would ride by us from Joe Breeze's house. Come on, you flakes, get up the mountain. Come on, you could do it, you could do it. You could do it. And then eventually they were right. And I ended up loving to climb. I ended up racing mountain bikes um, through the 80s, right? Like 85, 84 through 90. And still working, you know, for, uh, you know, doing odd jobs. I I had a, a great cabinet making job. I also did house painting, stuff like that. Still just working on all my friends' bikes, but going to races. And we had our first... What were you racing on? What were you riding? I was racing back then. I was racing on a modified SNS BMX bike, 26-inch BMX bike, that Eric Kosky put cantilever brake studs and a gear hanger on. So I used a Cooks Brothers front end, SNS, BMX, 26-inch rear, um, but did the full Suntour drivetrain at the time, I think, and the first alloy rims that came out, like Yukai, 26-inch, like gold alloy rims, I was all proud of. And uh, that was my first 
serious bike was the S&S bike. Then I graduated straight to a Ritchie. And I was working. I saved my money for a whole freaking summer. Bought a used one from Sunshine in Fairfax. Come on, Martin, man. Sell me that thing. And uh, how many gumballs you got in your pocket? No, I got money. I got money this time. Right? It was too small for me, and he knew it. But he sold it to me anyway. I rode the hell out of that. This thing. year, this year for Richie is uh, fifty years. He's been fifty years. Bikes. That's right. And I've been fortunate enough to watch the whole thing happen. I'll be turning 60 this year and I got to see all the first mountain bike shop with Gary Fisher and Charlie Kelly and Tom Ritchie all in the same business together before the divorce happened and Ritchie went on and Fisher went on and Charlie Kelly went on their own separate ways. The big breakup. <laughs> but it was called mountain bikes simply. And right. we would go to the mountain bike shop and see jewelry and we would stare at the windows and oh but then they would come out and ride with us on those very bikes and God I wanted one so bad and I eventually got one. And and when did you part with Jeep? You don't, I didn't see that hanging in your shop nope um, like I said it was too small for me and I sold it to one of my dear friends it was perfect for good so that one went but I sold it for a good reason because there was a certain individual in Mill Valley that was making his own bicycles at the time who befriended a young totally I introverted at the time it's hard to think about now but I was pretty introverted as a kid but I used to hang out and hitchhike right at the 2 a.m. club. Well, just up from there, a guy would, was making bicycles. And they were better than Richie's in my mind. They were better than anything I'd ever seen before. I could not believe these bikes. So I would hang out outside his driveway and just look at him and Mark Slate and Uva build these bikes and paint them. And oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's where these bikes come from says, yes, do you want to see, said Steve Potts as he walked me into his shop. And I, my jaw went to the ground. I'm tingling now thinking about it. I can come. You guys make these here? Paint everything? Head badges? All of this stuff? And John at the Swin Shop was helping Steve get bike parts, and Steve was making his first bikes. I have one of Steve's bikes in the back, original and made for me. I also have one of his tandems, the first of the 13 of the Baker's Dozen I bought. Uh, I still remember it, the price to this day was 4004 and I was begging for more. And I was saying, man, there's nothing else you can put on this thing. I want it all, man. I got to have it like the raddest tandem in the world, you know. And he built it for me. And I got the first one out of his shop. I raced it for years. I sometimes post uh, here or there. I'll post old pictures of me racing my tandem, but it's still together. That's beautiful. It's a blessing. You know, the story, it's, it's amazing. It took us uh, our, our past so many years to, to, over, to overlap, you know. But um, for me, my interest in biking happened in junior high in like around 1983. Right, yeah. Where my drafting teacher did touring. So he had some magazines laying around. So he'd read us these these stories during drafting time and, and I'd finish my drafting project and, I, and I'd start to draw his bikes. And I really wanted a, a touring bike. 
And so in through high school, when I was graduating, I told my sister I was going to, I wanted to get this bike. And she said, hey, these guys are doing this cool thing called mountain biking. And this was Scott Nickel, Wes Williams. You know, I was living in Sebastopol, where Ibis was being built at the time. So in 1987, I bought like an 84 stump jumper, you know, about when I was quitting team sports. But then later, the, the Steve Spot connection, I actually worked in Inverness and Point Reyes in, in, in the school and ran into Steve. I don't know if he remembers, remembers me now, but there were so many uh, custom frame builders uh, back in that day. And I think that really defines kind of Northern California. You know, there was Ross building salsa and and pots and all the guys in Marin and Scott Nickel. Ibises and Sebastopol. I mean, how many frame builders can you name if you just think uh, within the the greater Bay Area at the time? There There was a considerable number um, at the time. Bernie Mickelson was making, Ed Litton was making, um, Joe Breeze was still making a few bikes, Otis Guy was making them in Fairfax. Um, but really, the coveted bikes at the time, of any of them, were Steve Potts or Charlie Cunningham. If you had a Potts or Cunningham, you're, you're, you weren't hurting. Let's just put it that way. But they, Cunningham was building... When did he start building aluminum? I thought that was, that was pretty uncommon, right? Oh, it was totally uncommon. It was him and Gary Klein uh-huh. made the first large diameter aluminum tube bikes... Um, before Cannondale um, was Gary Klein and Charlie Cunningham. And Charlie, being the aeronautical um, engineer and all this, you know, he's just such a hippie madman in his head, genius, super genius, that he came up with a lot of stuff for the mountain bike industry par excellence. Nobody can hold a candle to what Charlie brought to the table. He bought he brought bikes that were pounds lighter than steel at the time. He brought his own hubs that had grease ports in them, so you didn't need to even grease your hubs anymore. <laughs> repack. <laughs> but he learned from repack. You didn't even ever have to repack your bearings again. Um, uh, uh, greasable bottom brackets. He did oversized bottom bracket. Like everybody has this boost spacing right now, which uses a 73 mil wide bottom bracket or maybe 90. Well, Charlie had 100 mil bottom brackets back then. He had the proper drive trains with smaller front chain rings than other people with wider rear ratios, which is a lot of the modern one by. He uh, invented the modern roller cam brake. It was called the Speedmaster back then. And some tour license to call it the roller cam and um what else there uh drop style handlebars for off-road use um i hear that's popular these days yeah, it's popular these days <laughs> and you know in in the back i showed you the the cunningham i have back there that's 1983 was Steve Cook's cyclocross winning Charlie Cunningham aluminum tube 29er gravel bike, whatever you want to call it, (laughs) Uh is back there. And when did you say you got into it again? 84? Yeah. Okay, so that Cunningham back there predates your whole cycling, mountain bike cycling experience. And it was 700C, so it was a niner. And it also had gobs of tire clearance and 
Let's see, Charlie made his own seat posts. He made, it was called a fixed angle, but everybody now uses a real steep seat post like he does. He used uh, large diameter tubing for lightweight. He had the progressive angles and tire clearance, everything. You know, he had about it, but he just, you know, he wasn't a marketing guy. He was just the hippie. He had his own Chinese kiln. He still does in his backyard to heat treat stuff, right? It's done to the decimal, right? But it starts with a fire, you know, at the bottom of the hill. And by the top of the hill, it is white hot, you know, and it's ancient Chinese secrets, you know? Yeah. All that stuff. You know, and reading, reading stories of back in the days, and obviously there were some competitive folks and some have done really well and came out ahead but it, it, to be a, a an engineer and to be a creative and to be a visionary and to be a business person is is not the same thing they don't often no. <laughs> come together so there was a lot of a lot of scrambling at the time for for the share of the market and people you know seeing what what could be definitely um you know i was talking about the old mountain bike shop in san anselmo had gary fisher had charlie kelly and had tom ritchie Right, and you were talking about how some people weren't good at some things and others good at others. Well, Tom Ritchie was not good at selling, right? Not good at really marketing at the time. He was a racer extraordinaire and is an excellent bike builder, had all the connections in Palo Alto to get those Cupertino bike shop, to get all those parts together. Um, but he wasn't selling them, right? Gary Fisher wasn't building them, right? But man, he knew where they were going and he could sell you on one, you know, like nobody's business. And if he couldn't sell it to you on the floor, let's go ride. And then he'd show you what they could do and you would have to have one, right? Like I said, I had to have that Richie man. I just worked all summer for it. Oh my God. But then there was Charlie Kelly. Well, Charlie Kelly, bless his soul, was the first publisher of a mountain bike magazine, the Fat Tire Flyer. So Charlie was a publicist, Gary was the sales guy, and Tom was the builder. And a sport was born. I mean, without those three guys, it would not have gone. It'd still be old cruisers bumming parts from John at the old twin shop, you know, blowing up coaster brake pants yeah. or something. So I asked, I asked you to make the connection, and we got talking about the bikes now, from, from racing bikes to becoming a pro-level mechanic for yes. Schwinn. Great I mean, there's there's a few steps between, between one and the other, I would imagine. Yeah, it's a great story, that story. Um, well, we, I have time. Okay. I have time. Well, our guests, had, our listeners have time. Let's hear the story. We... Um, I helped create a local mountain bike team called Team Tam. And it was all locals from the mountain who rode the mountain, who lived the mountain, and raced. And we all decided to put together a team, Team Tam. Well, we ended up being the top team in Marin. Um, got a few clunker awards. Top team, top team. And we were sponsored by Campanolo, who was coming out with bike parts in the late 80s, very early beginning of the 90s. And they needed a team. So I was working... Okay, so you're talking about how does I get to be the pro mechanic. I was a cabinet maker and a painter all through like I was 20. And then 
It was just, if you, anybody is out there ever a cabinet maker, it's not as easy as it sounds. And it's a lot of dust and hard work and heavy boards. So it wasn't like my dream job by any means. Well, Sammy Hagar, rock and roller, can't drive 55 himself, decided to open a bike shop in Sausalito, California, called Sausalito Cyclery. My good buddy, we're also... Wait, hold on a second. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. So Sammy Hagar... <laughs> Sammy Hagar, the red rocker... Decides to open a bike shop in Sausalito. Was he already a rider or he... Okay. Well, I mean, right. that's I'll, another story, but I'll come on, wait a minute. i back, back text here. <laughs> Sammy Hagar's brother-in-law, the late, great Buck Berardi, Schwinn-trained bicycle mechanic from Fontana, California, down in Fontucky... Um, Moved up here when Sammy Hagar moved up here um, because Sammy married Buck's sister. So now Buck was Sammy's brother-in-law. Buck is a bike guy extraordinaire. When Sammy hit it big with all the Montrose and all his original Red Rocker stuff before Van Hagar came out, <laughs> um, uh, Buck used to roadie. For Sam, but it wasn't a steady gig, right? So Sam bought a bike shop in Corte Madera called Corte Madera Cyclery to give Buck a place to work, right? Buck and his kid, Ben. A place to work. I never got over there much because that was verging on the backside and I had the Mill Valley Schwinn shop. So I didn't frequent Corte Madera Cyclery that much. But Buck I knew as being the most gracious guy. So if you were at all in the mountain bikes back then, you couldn't just buy stuff at any shop. You had to go to a certain shop. Usually it was a Cove bike shop in Mill Valley, uh, in Tiburon, Mill Valley Cyclery in Mill Valley, or Sunshine in Fairfax. Those were the shops. But every once in a while, they didn't have stuff. So you'd have to venture out. You know, there was Village Peddler. And I'm sure you just Googled it and uh, checked their inventory, no, no, right? We'd have to ride, we'd <laughs> ride our bikes all the time because we had to get those bearings or whatever we needed to go riding, right? was a critical must-have today kind of thing. And we would go anywhere to get the stuff. So I ended up going to Corte Madera Cyclery a few times and meeting Buck. And... Buck ended up being one of my true blue soul brothers until um, he passed away. So when Sammy bought Sausalito Cyclery, which is another great story, it's in the Gate 6 area of Sausalito Waterfront, which was full of whores and drug dealers back at that time. I kid you not, it was very gritty place to be. Would have been a good time to buy some real estate, maybe? Uh, definitely, definitely. But the, the local marina owner of Capus Marina wanted to change the image, and he wanted to tear down the old bait shop, which was just classic old bait shop, reeking of old beer, and they had buck knives in the case, and just really old salts, you know, and you could barely see inside, you know, <laughs> really, really there. And But they decided to make this bait shop market complex there, and then... Sammy was thinking of putting an office there, but then the guy's thinking, well, we kind of want a retail business here, maybe. And Sam's like, oh, 
Well, I already have a bike shop in Corte Madera. So the guy says, Sam, if you move a bike shop in here, right, I'll build the building however you want it. I will build the building for your bike shop. Just move in here, please, because it's it's too gnarly. I want to change the image. What is that building now? That is now continues to be Sausalito Cycle, right on the off ramp, on ramp of the northern end of Sausalito. There, still there, still an amazing building built for cyclists. So Sammy Hagar is your gateway, your connection into being a professional mechanic. It this yes, and it gets so. Sammy opens his shop. My good buddies on Team Tam, Brad, says, man, you ever want to quit cabinets, come work for us because we need guys right now. I need guys. We open the shop. We don't got guys. And it's not everybody new mountain bikes, you know, at all. And I said, oh, man, Brad, how much you offer me? He goes, I can offer you at least half what you're making now. I guarantee you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what a tempting offer. I know. I'm like, oh, dude, <laughs> come on, just anything. I'd love this. A brand new bike shop. You guys are Bianchi dealers. And they had all the road race bikes and Rossines and everything. Richie's and Fisher's at the time, excuse me. And uh, So he seduced you with half your wages that you were going to spend all of it right. on but bikes. It, but it took a while. That nugget was planted right okay. that seed was planted by brad okay brad and as you were inhaling dust in I the shop day after down. day you started to think about right so i spent six weeks building this whole medical office suite on the floor of pacific medical center in san francisco cabinet wise six weeks cutting wood making everything so then i hire the guys we go to install right they moved the whole wall that I was supposed to mount these cabinets in. Nobody bothered to call us. Six weeks of work, there was nowhere to put them. There was no wall. I'm like, what happened here? <laughs> right, so I'm talking with the job, so oh, no, you didn't get the memo? Oh my God. So I literally had a meltdown. The memo, not the email. Right, right. The Do memo. You, nobody told you? I'm like, ah, right? Then, you know, they paid for them and everything, but it was such a colossal waste of time. And I'm like, you know, you, you end up bleeding from making cabinets at that level, you know, a whole floor's worth. And I'm like, oh my God. So I called Brad right up, dude, is that job still available? <laughs> Gave two weeks' notice when Brad said, yes, that job's available. So then I went to work in my first retail bike shop. Whoa, what an eye-opener that was. We were, and that was right in the mountain bike boom. So we could not build bikes fast enough. What year was that? That was uh, mid to late 80s. Mm -hmm. And it was 85, 86, and just building them as fast as we could. And our local team, Team Tam, was now sponsored by Sausalito Cycle because I was working there, and so was Brad, the manager. So we got Sammy to kick down. Come on, Sam, kick down. So we got jerseys made, and we had bikes by Rossine Mountain Bikes. Beautiful bikes. All campy. So Campy at the time wasn't known for their mountain bike equipment, so they used their mountain bike teams to kind of glean information. At that time? At that like they're time. they're really known for it now. They're not at all. They gave up on it. Yeah. Because basically it was all too heavy and it didn't work as well as the current offerings. 
and they just couldn't nail it. Not, not nearly. Like I remember some, they were still trying when I got into racing. They yeah. were still kind of trying, but you're like once right. went Shimano and well, it was Sun Sun Tour had yeah, owned it in for the a while, beginning. for a while, yeah. And then Shimano came out with Dior, and then they kept coming out with better Dior, and now and then they came out with XT. Dior XT. tried for a while. Oh yeah, yeah. And then once they came out XTR. with XTR, it's like <laughs> it was all now, over. Came and now over. look at it, twelve speed. You know. It's, it's crazy, but but at the time, Campy was you know sponsoring our team to the tune of we could go traveling and racing, which was unheard of back then. Only a few people got gigs, you know. There was some pretty good money in mountain bike racing in the yes, in the early it, days it, of it. it there it was, yeah. and so Team Tam, being a you know at this time expert and a couple pros on the team. Decided, we're going to go try out for the World Championships in Durango, Colorado. The very first World Championships that ever were. And we showed up to Campy for their new Grupo, right? Ten of us show up there. We're ready for our new parts. Put them on, you know? And they laughed at us with all the top pros like Don Myra, Tinker, Cindy Whitehead, yeah. all of them waiting yeah, for help. Yeah, yeah. And we're 10 scrubbers. Can you rebuild 10 bikes right now, please? Ah, the hush goes over the crowd. No, they said. <laughs> Did you bring your tools? And I said, just so happens I did bring my tools, they said. And then they looked at me serious. You brought your tools. I said, yeah, I don't leave home without my tools, right? I never raced there, Mig. I worked the whole weekend working on the top pros for Campy all the way through. They gave me all sorts of stuff at the end. And I was in, I went to the team dinners and all this. And I'm like, I love this. You know, God, this is a home for so me. So the moral of the story for the youth is don't leave home without your tools. Right. And give your services away when you first start because you're not all that. And you just go ready to scrub chain and shut up and just do whatever they ask of you. And with a smile on your face to the best of your abilities for nothing, not a penny, and go in there just because of your soul that's going to come in right back at you again. You know, Grave, you're getting to the part of you that I hear from people that love you so much and seeing this as like your satisfaction. Obviously, you wanted to be a racer, but your satisfaction in having worked on something that worked for somebody else and you've been the mechanic right. for some top pros um jimmy d world champion maybe it can't be that you work on someone's bike and they win the world championship you know had that bike not wor worked they would not have won exactly and i you know i talked to a lot of my racers at length about how I gain insight through their suffering, right? I really do. Like on their their training regimen, their just their whole outlook on life, their their dedication, their absolutely religious dedication to the craft. And and my you know, their art is very, very kinetic 
right? They put energy in, they fly through midair, they get sideways, they're, they're, they're stoking the crowd, they're working the crowd, you know, like, like Brian Lopes at a dual slalom or something, you know, come on, everybody, you know, you want to see something this time, you know, and, and, you know, and, and my art, which is totally static, right? My art just sits there, Right, my mechanic art, right? Ooh, look at that rad bike Tinker's got. All those red bits on it and all the alloy, everything, and whoa, handmade wheels and and you know, all the little bits, but it just sits there. You know, like right in my garage right now, I'm looking at all these killer bikes. Oh, and they pull it out at work, so gravy helps. It just so not- sits there, right? So my art, because I love to see the bikes to work on the bikes and to make them as as pimp as I can, you know, whether it's paint or decals or, you know, back in the day, you could thank me for purple alloy, right? You thank Yeti for turquoise alloy and all that. We we wanted color, you know? So who are you? Not everyone knows knows Gravy, right? I mean, okay. obviously, I'm not going to date you a little bit, no, but no, you already ahead. dated yourself. But like, no, no. who were some, who did you work for? And who were some of the, some of the pros that you, you know, okay. help, help succeed? Okay. I mean, we've got a long list. I, I look got, at the wall. Cord here. Let's go over here. So right up here, Mig, you'll see we were just talking. Here's a picture of Greg Herbold winning the first downhill world championship. I took that picture of HB roosting the last jump. I got passed by him in the Lemurian shoot one time. (laughs) He is awesome. Okay, so we're going to, we want to talk about some pros. Steve Larson, Tammy Jacques, Elka Brutzer, Jürgen Beneke. For people who don't know this, he just, uh, Gravy just pulled a list off of his pin board and is now reading the list so you don't forget how many people that he's improved. Dave Collin and uh, Sean Palmer. Randy Lawrence, Troy Lee of Troy Lee Composites, that was his mechanic, Joe Lawwell, Marlis Streb, uh, April Lawyer, Colin Bailey, who's now a mechanic for Giant Traveling the World, and we talk to this day, and he was one of my racers, he was 11, and now he's a Pro Cup, Pro World Tour uh, mechanic. Kurt Voris, uh, Curly, who set the speed record on her bike, uh, Tattoo Lou, Ned Overend, Daryl Price. Oh, just Ned. Julie Furtado, Sarah Ballantyne, Kurt Stockton, we were just talking about Kurt. Kurt Stockton, Max Jones, who used to race with John Tomac. Uh, Elodie Brown, who's an amazing Canadian racer extraordinaire. Martin Stinger raced a slingshot back in the day. I was Martin's mechanic. Mike Closer, uh, Rishi and Ranji Graywall, their b- brother Alexi won the gold um, Olympic gold. Olympic gold, yeah. Uh, Jimmy Deaton, uh, world champion Miles Rockwell from Fairfax, California. The wonderful, amazing, most illustrious Missy Geo. Okay, let's pause right here because this list is so long. <laughs> Give me a Missy story. Okay. There's got to be a lot. Give us a Missy okay, story. Okay, Missy, uh, okay, here's one. Missy daydreaming. Okay, Missy was a, uh, I'm sorry, sleepwalking. She was a sleepwalker. Um, like literally, like, literally, like she would just walk no, in her she sleep. She would walk in her sleep. And 
it was hilarious. And she's kind of like a Beavis and Butthead character anyway. And when she's sleepwalking, it's it's just hilarious. So we, back in the day, the the Norba, the national circuit for mountain biking, was pretty convoluted. They had us driving East Coast, back to Mammoth, back to Michigan, back to Canada, then to the East Coast again. And we'd go back and forth, and we would drive the Yeti truck back then, which Missy raced for back then, and I was a mechanic for it. So Missy, um, she's vegan, super kind of, kind of, you know, kind of a chosen one, and she would only eat what she could, you know, had to eat the certain diet. So we drive across the country for days on end in a sweltering. A lot of vegans in the central part of the U.S. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so we get there, and she's eating old, moldy old quinoa that she cooked back in Colorado, and she's totally strung out just from just diabetic withdrawal or whatever, and days of on the road, and she's not the one to be cooped up for any length of time. So she's just literally <laughs> the whole time. And then she, we finally get to Mount Snow, Vermont, which was our race, and we decide to stop at this country breakfast kind of place to eat breakfast. We all stop. Oh, yeah. Before we hit the venue, let's all get something to eat. We've all drove for days. Let's get some. Missy, come on. Let's go. Huh? No, I'm too tired. You guys just get me something. I'm going to sleep it off in the van. Right? Missy, let's get some food. No, no. I'm going to sleep. Okay, so we all leave. Me, Deaton, Roop, Ranji, Graywall, Mount Larry. We all go to eat. And... I see Jimmy looking out the restaurant window, kind of cocky, cockeyed, Jimmy Deaton. And he's looking, what's she doing, he says. I said, I don't know, I can't see her. What's she doing? He goes, Deaton, she's pissing in the parking lot, right? Right in front of everybody, right? I'm like, no, right? So she's, she's got like her Adidas like silk sweats on. She's got this Chinese rice pickers hat on, this huge, you know, cone-shaped hat on. She's got all her gangster jewelry on. And she stumbles into the restaurant after that, right? She stumbles in, go walks over, to these old people's table, right? This turned out to be the restaurant's best customer's table and sits down at their table. Head goes down, kaboom, sleeping. Deaton's mortified. <gasps> Roop, <laughs> right? He tells Rob to go do things for Jimmy. Roop, go get her. I ain't getting her. You go get her. Right? So Jimmy, no one wants to wake her up? Nobody wants to just... Did you know she was asleep at that no, time? No, we did not know she was asleep. We were just like, what is she doing, right? She's a kook anyway, right? But this was a little odd. So Jimmy goes to pick her up and she's shuffling her feet and stumbles over to the table, our table, sits down, her head knocks into like a glass or something, jingles, and she wakes up. Meanwhile, the old people, right, have gathered all their things and ran out of the door as fast as they could, right? Because she was just, you know, you know, 
And, oh, my God, and it's just, you guys got to get out of here as fast as you can. You know, it's just, oh, my God. And, and so that there's there's a good Missy That's story That's a pretty epic yeah, story. I was thinking of when you told me one of her hucking plates out of your apartment, uh, your, your condo, and that was a different story. No, that was a different story. We also, the fireworks wars between Yeti and Specialized, legendary. Shooting fireworks at they each other. They had to literally, we had to, all the teams had to call a truce because of that. Missy would throw fireworks. She especially loved to pester Jimmy Deaton, right? Because Jimmy kind of taught her everything, like how to turn left and then right and then straight, right? So everything, basically. But not break. No. (laughs) No breaking. No breaking allowed. And breaks only slow you down, gravy. And, uh, And she would throw fireworks into Jimmy's shower while he was taking a shower, you know, and all this. So the fireworks were out of control. And when you're driving across the country, you drive by these huge mega warehouses of fireworks. And so we had to stop the fireworks wars. Like we'd line up bottle rockets from one apartment to the next and then just shoot them all at them and, you know, out of control. That was epic, you know. And, and this, as, as the stories go on, We'll go back to that list in just a second, though. But like, you know, tinker. You know, and this is a a different thing. But like, so many crazy things that happened just happened, and then were stories. And I think, you know, uh, myself included, I'm really careful about nice photos I take and things that I say because it's not just that things may be taken out of context, but that things are recorded forever for better or for worse you know and i think that it's unfortunate that time has passed for for the adventures where things can just happen right you know um so talked about jimmy deaton and i know we're kind of jumping around a little bit but i know i met him up up here with you um yep (laughs) great guy and you know he's really in you know his cycling career is extended uh, by his drop bars and his gravel and and he loves and, right, your events and they, touring he's really been does. out um you know what do you think about we'll go back you know connecting us up into the present time but like the the state of affairs of uh of what bikes are now and that's a pretty broad broad statement but i just saw your whole thing from your from your e-bike right. to your i mean bikes are bikes and they're rad but we were talking about people riding on cruisers to you you've, you've seen it all we were we were online trying to figure out the firmware for my shimano <laughs> for di2, DI yeah. i would imagine as a mechanic yes you appreciate and embrace most of it but maybe not all of it like well for me like I've I've been blessed to see the whole evolution of the sport from pre-war steel of me cherishing pre-war steel as a kid to the whole evolution, you know, being right in Mill Valley, right in the heart of it. I got to see it, you know, and basically the biggest the biggest changes um, alloy rims were first. Yukai came out with. Uh, uh, their first alloy 26-inch rim for the BMX crowd, actually. That lightened the wheels up considerably. That changed mountain biking. Um, one of the biggest things to change was the free hub, the addition of a free hub to the hub. We were breaking rear axles off all the time on our bikes. Rear axles would break, and that was the end of your ride. 
And they would break pretty regularly, even boltons, you know, didn't have good quick release yet, you know, and, and they would break. So Shimano came out with their free hub and we were no longer breaking free wheels, which we used at the time. And then all of a sudden the hubs could work and they would go up mountains and not break, even on my tandem, you know, and I'm like, ooh, this is good. And then I, you know, then it would have to be suspension. You know, it was the big thing in 1990. Actually, that picture I was just showing you. Uh, RockShocks came out that at that race with the very first RockShock fork. That, yeah, that race that, that Herball passed me when Lemurian was a two-day thing, motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. And then mountain biking, he had a RockShox. I remember I was on my rigid yeah, Ibis yeah. uh, rim brake. Yeah. Yeah. And... You know, then <clears throat> index shifting, you know, was also big back then. Uh, Dior came out with the best at the time. Sun Tour was pretty good, but the Shimano stuff just worked. Uh, the clipless pedal, Joe Murray helped create for Shimano. Where would we be without the clipless pedal on mountain bikes these days? I mean, a lot of people run flats, right? But most people don't, so, you know. On the pedal... What other thing have they made once and not changed? I still have my original pair of Shimano pedals. It's the same cleat. It is. The bearings still work. How did they... And Shimano, like many people, it seems like they almost build something know, knowing they already have the newest generation that's going to be better so they could buy it twice. Like, just how did they nail that without room for improvement? Well, it's mind-boggling. Yes. Well, they luckily they had... Um, very good testers, Joe Murray uh, being one of them, the top mountain bike racer of the day, helping him. <clears throat> and also, you know, toe straps at the time with cleats, they were pretty much death straps. Oh, I mean, oh. you were stuck. Oh, your shins? Yeah. The shin and, marks from trying to yep, start again? Yep. And, and the pedals? You know, oh. they had little toe flips to make it easier. You know, but generally it was a pain in the ass. God, I forgot and, about that. How many people remember racing? We'd get your foot in, you'd yep. cinch it down. Yeah. And if you fell over... <clears throat> they were cinched into your... Yeah, you were, you were done. And uh, uh, the real roadie-type racers of the day, they had cleats on their shoes that would hook into the lip of the pedal. I had the, and yeah, then they that. would clamp the toe strap yeah, over yeah. those. And you're not coming out of your pedals, you know, after that. So basically, um, time and look both created their clip... Well, I should say look created their clipless pedal first. The guy who designed for look went on to create time pedals, right? But those two pedals were the first clipless pedals for road bikes that ever were. Shimano saw the writing on the wall, but they knew that those weren't all that either. So, you know, how they came up with that exact release mechanism... I don't know, but it went on for snowboards now, have them, you know, you know, they don't, 
they don't spout too much about their process, but I'm sure somebody's playing golf in Hawaii right now on their design. You know, Gray, if you were there at the start of suspension, I, I want to ask you to elaborate on the story that Jimmy D was talking about when when I think there was discussion about how much suspension and how much travel, and he was having to argue, <laughs> oh, he you did. give me no, more no, travel, I, I go faster. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's really no there's really no discussion for that. Obviously, there's a limit to that, but at the time when you're getting, what, an inch and a half of travel or whatever, what, what, was, what was that story about pushing the limits? And these were national world champions. These just weren't. Right. Well, um, I should say, I'm, I'm just going to jump back real quick to the Campy. I've worked for Campy at the Worlds, and that was my first eye-opener. Well, the Yeti team saw me working on their bikes, a lot of them had Campy at the time. Julie Furtado's had Campy at the time, but she took it off to put Shimano on just for that race. And that's a whole other story. Sponsors of, probably of, didn't like that. Of, of, you know, and so she won on of, Shimano. She won on Shimano. Sponsored by Campy. Sponsored by Campy. Oh. Yeah, that was big. That's, still a, nugget, to this that's a nugget day, of a story. To this day, it is still, still hurts. Certainly. Uh, hopefully Shimano has a picture of her in their Hall of Fame, I imagine. And the wonderful owner of Yeti Cycles, John Parker, I called him Buana. He was just he was just the greatest guy who put together one of the first super teams, had Tomac, had Furtado, had Johnny O'Mara, had everybody. You know, Mountain Larry even raced for Yeti, you know. Had the gray walls, you know, and it was awesome. But he pretty much, he was the dictator, you know. He dictated. And he also was super in love with flat track racing. And flat track racing is where you race motorcycles at 100 miles an hour, uh, getting sideways with no front brake, just sideways around each turn, pretty much as fast as you can go. And John's hero was Mert Lawwell, who we talked about earlier. And, and John's philosophy for downhilling was, hell, they don't need suspension on Harley. He's going 100. What do you need suspension for? What are you doing, 20? Right? You don't need suspension. Suspension's wussies or something like that. And then Deaton, who has just get, got beat by someone with suspension, goes, John holds up his hand about an inch. He goes, you give me this much more travel. And then he holds his, his hands up about five inches. I'll go this much faster. And if you give me two inches of travel, he's showing, <laughs> I'll go a foot faster. You know, he's like, and they screamed and screamed. And Jimmy's like, I'm going to quit to go to the other team. And Parker's like, you're no good. You'll never do nothing without me and all this stuff. And, <laughs> you know, and it was just going back and forth and, and back and forth. And basically it was uh, Frank the Welder, who was working for Yeti at the time, Chris Herding. That was his last name? Yes. Frank the uh, Welder. Frank Waddleton. The Welder. <laughs> yeah, Frank the Welder and his brother Phil the Welder. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Chris Herding, who's now 3D racing out of Durango, Colorado. They got together and basically created the rough suspension for that. And Easton tubing, Easton aluminum tubing, frame tubing, wanted to debut their 
new tubing called uh, Program Tube Set, which is super double butted alloy tubing. That's what Yeti started building their bikes. Well, Yeti would never build out of aluminum, Eventually, right? Yeah, yeah. But they'd never build suspension either <laughs> and all this, oh, no, 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 right? So they ended up just making one, right? And the guy's almost getting fired for making one because Parker, oh, we don't need suspension and all that. And then everybody loving it. And which eventually turned into the first Yeti with suspension at the time. And it was uh, Harbinger. We went on to win everything that year that we could. Missy came on the scene that year. Uh, that was one of my finest years. But anyway, they saw me working at Campy so hard. They said, dude, would you want to move to Durango to the new Yeti factory in Durango, Colorado? Now I was working at Sammy Hagar's bike shop, so I, was, I had it pretty good, you know. And I had a race team and all this, and it was totally this. And Parker goes, dude, you've already forgotten more than any of these mechanics know. He goes, you come on our team, we'll send you around the world. And that is a, that is a promise, right? So to this day... I will always shake John's hand and said, thank you, John, for shoving me over to Europe, all with nothing but just me, and, and thanks for doing that, because it was a life experience. So, Grave, you start working with Yeti, they're going to fly you around the world with... Jimmy D and a woman wearing a piranha around her neck. <laughs> I mean, you know, and the other and host. Th things, yeah. And things were going huge. Mountain biking was was, was first kicking off in Europe and um, around the world. So what, what came next? Well, I had the fortune. Every team I worked for ended up being the top team that year. And I wrenched for eight years. Coincidence? Um. Maybe, um, but I'd like to you think... You can't disprove that it was you because right? it was you, right? I, it was me, yeah. <laughs> I could say that I, you know, had a hand in it. It was also back when, you know, I built all the wheels for our team. And for people that don't know me, I'm, I'm a wheel builder as well, gravy wheels. Um, you're, is, you're really well known from is, what I understand. It's my company, and I've been building wheels pretty much uh, since the 80s for people. And BMX or, you know, uh, handicap, you know, race wheels, anything that people want, you know, basically. I've done a few motorcycle wheels. I kind of stopped there. It's hard on the hands. But, um, you know, going back at Yeti, it was such a treat and honor to be there and then to be able to, like, bring my end into it because they weren't into all these custom wheels and they weren't into the the Gucci. Like, in, in Marin County, you know, we started to get, you know, we had bikes painted like zebras. We had alloy matching. We had black and white. You know, we had it, the style thing going on. And yet he pretty much didn't have that going on. So I was able to bring my whole end of customization in. So you're responsible for the Marine, the Marin flare. That, that's that's <laughs> no. actually the Marin bikes flare. No, but the Yeti flare. Um, I had a huge part in, you know, the early purple anno, like we were talking about. 
Um, we had also turquoise. We came in a couple years later. Uh, we had the nude finish that we came out with. We, we, we just shot peened aluminum and cleared over it with like a colored like fade front end to save weight, you know, on paint. And, you know, the Yeti, Yeti was a big, was a big stepping stone for everyone on the team. The owner was gotten big, like you said, it just started ballooning. Um, all of a sudden, we had the racers who were winning. We had Miles and Jimmy on the same team. We got first and second at the Kamikaze one year. We just, was anyone else in the race? You know, it was like, oh my God, our team is on a roll. And that went on a couple years. What about cross country? Our cross country team was kicking ass too. And it was all cross country. Downhill was fringe sport back in the day. Yeah. Before the 1990 World Championships at Herbal, we were just looking at that picture. Downhilling was pretty fringe, you know. It was cool, but the cross-country dudes ruled. Ned Overend, Tom Ag, cross-country ruled. You know, that's all anybody really did was cross-country. But me being from Mount Tam and doing 10 downhills a day since youth, I was way into downhills. <laughs> and in the first Norba meetings, I think you could have count me as one of the few people that were in to downhilling at all because they wanted to kill the sport because of all the trail conflicts that were happening and downhill is bad for our image and all this and that. I said, hold it, hold it, hold it. This whole half of these people out here don't ever want to pedal up a hill, right? But they love mountain biking just to go down, you know? Embrace that. You know, downhilling is awesome. Right a lot of us pedal up so yeah, that we could go down. I mean, that's really skiing, right. There's downhill skiing. Yeah. You know, it's all mountain sport, and it's downhill's all part of it. And I remember the, one of the very first meetings I was there going, hold on. <laughs> what about the downhillers? You know, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was one of the big, I got a big argument net over end actually on that very subject. Of, oh, no, that'll just kill our sport. Because the sport wasn't really a sport yet. This is before the UCI World Championships, before any official money came in for TV or any of that. I remember I, just a couple years into racing cross-country, I really wanted to race downhill. In fact, I won the uh, the LaGrange downhill, won only one expert beyond one, one pro, but... Um, like it, it was starting to take a, a different bike, which we didn't have the funds for right. then, because you're racing on your 26 inch rim brake. Maybe I had the first rock shocks or no fork back then. Right. I was like, oh, that is fun pointing right. it downhill. But like, it was obvious that that was well for us, anyways. Here that that wasn't subtracting from the potential of the sport. Of course, there's going to be potential user conflict stuff, but there is on a cross country bike right. trail as well. Exactly. And, you know, we we had an unfair advantage because, you know, I was building custom wheels, but they were also building custom bikes. Like everybody raced the kamikaze, right? But they didn't have kamikaze bikes, 
right? They didn't have long lower wheelbases. They didn't have oh, the chain right. retention. They didn't have 60-tooth right. chain rings, <laughs> right, to race mammoth with. So we'd come with, like, the Bonneville salt flats, right? Like, you'd show up with your typical dragster or you'd have a Bonneville car, right? So everybody shows up with their typical mountain bike with a big chain ring on it. That probably only worked one year, though, right? Yeah. I imagine your competitors saw that, and the next they year they came back, right? They weren't able to make custom for everyone bikes. We had Yeti Fact. We had Frank the freaking welder, baby. <laughs> you know, you sure, Missy, you want a quarter inch less top tube? No problem, you know. And we also had, and Durango's an avid cycling community. So anything that the racers didn't like, we could sell, right? Ooh, racer special, you know, 10% off. So you retail. weren't losing money by innovating and right? doing custom. Not at all. And, and we would, you know, every year we'd sell our race bikes and just get new, radder bikes. So we had East Coast bikes. We had West Coast bikes. We had commie bikes. We had people didn't know any of that. They just looked like every other bike that we raced. But we were able to pull a quiver. And who was doing suspension then? It was just Rock Shocks. And it was Manitou. just in the front, Manitou. right? Manitou. Manitou. Yeah, it was okay. Manitou and Rock Shocks. First, yeah. um, there was a few. It took Fox a while to come in. But when they came in, they came in with yeah, solid products. Exactly. Yeah. Like it took Shimano a while to come out with mountain bike stuff, but when they did, they owned it. And you'd have to say Fox has done the same. You know, they've And when did you start having front and rear suspension? Well that was that with way? that was with Yeti. So that yeah. was I started with Yeti in ninety one. And then ninety two. And then like I said, we were winning every you know, we won we were, Park, John Parker, the owner of Yeti, had the greatest thing. He goes, we don't put a dime into advertising. We spend it on our race team, right? So all our advertising money is our race team. We use our race team to advertise. Now, not a lot of companies do that anymore at all, right? Maybe some specialized does that to great effect and, and you know, but back then it was Parker, we don't spend a dime on advertising because I'll have Missy on the cover of that magazine, right? <laughs> and I'll have Deaton winning and we'll own that whole story. I'll have five pages of Yeti heads, right? He goes, but we need the bike, right? So he knew, right? And I was the tweaker who'd get in there and say, oh, but we could get a better spoke and if I pull all the seals off the bearings, we'll go that little bit faster and if I use oil instead of grease, we'll even go faster still. No teams were doing that. They wondered how we went 65 miles an hour and down the commie. It wasn't from just running your average bike, you know. Uh, Jimmy Deaton, he he developed the first uh, super thick downhill tire by cutting one tire and fitting it inside another, a whole tire within a tire. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody so took oh, like a dude. slick and put it inside of an put it inside so we'd have a whole nother carcass and a whole nother rubber and then the and then the bobber aluminum rims and just yeah. freaking send it and just 60 psi 60 psi's <laughs> yeah before tubeless remember the pressure we had to ride and yeah. race on we had a motto saying man that was a long way to go for a flat tire <laughs> huh Jimmy yeah we went to South Africa for that flat tire gravy you know remember racing 26 inch rim brakes with 50 pounds in them so you yeah, wouldn't no, fly. that was the Yetis. That's, that was us. And, you know, then the Yeti um, was so good that it couldn't last. 
So Volvo and Cannondale both wanted to get into mountain bike racing. Cannondale didn't have squad of a product at the time. Volvo wanted to debut their new, you know, X-series, you know, sedan, turbo sedans. And um, they had money to burn. And so they hired the top road team manager at the time, the old 7-Eleven team manager, Tom Schuler, to put together a team for them. Just like the monkeys, the rock band, you know, like, well, we're going to take you and you and you and you and you, and we're all going to be this great team, right? So they came up with substantial offers for Missy, GOV, and Miles, and, and Miles yeah, to leave Yeti. And they both said they wouldn't go without me. So I I was the one who had to tell John Parker that you're all leaving. That we're all leaving. That probably didn't go over so well. The guy who took us and made us who we were was me. And then there's Jimmy, who's the guy who didn't get picked. Going, but what about me? Right. So I had to talk to Jimmy and Oof. Parker. Rough. Saying bros. But I had a kid just then, and they were literally offering me a living wage. Instead of Parker, you know, we're not in this for the money, you know. And, you know, it was substantial. It was like four times what I was getting paid or something ridiculous. And they said they wouldn't go without me. So come on, Gravy, you got to come with us, right? Come on. You know, because they were getting offered six figures. And I was like, so if I go, these guys get a better job too. And we all go. Little did I know how rad that team would be, the Volvo Cannondale. And did that was now did Tinker Mike come on with Tinker on the first team with them too, or that because he was with Klein yeah, before that, so right? I, I, he was. So I walk into the room to to Tinker Juarez and Allison Sidor and right. Mark Gullickson. Right. Tinker's girlfriend Sarah Ellis at the time was racing for Klein as well. Um, Missy Giovi, Miles Rockwell, the French national champion Frank Roman, Japanese national champion Kenichi Nabashima, and this crazy Czechoslovakian trials rider named Libor Karras. And Libor, Leapin' Libor, I called him. I saw the Cannondale trials bike in there, is that? Yep, and uh, that's a 24-inch BMX. Oh, that's BMX. How rare is that one? You probably didn't see the Campinolo New old stock BMX. We'll be touring your bikes later. For yes. we'll be we'll tour later. New old stock can't be BMX from the seventies. Um, yes, but I walked into the room with all these stars of the world, and they and they not walk me. You know, I walk in. I'm like, oh god. <laughs> and they're like, and I was the only mechanic at the time. You were a rock star. I mean, your dad was the rock, was the musician. My, but I mean, you lived a rock star lifestyle. I, I did, and it was incredible. My dad, being a blues musician, my mom was Janis Joplin's roommate. Made all her clothes for all the rock stars, the Beatles jackets and stuff. And my dad, being that, and in Marin County, in the seventies, it was a time indeed. And you know, mountain biking 
really saved me from a life of, I guess, being a roadie or, you know, serious drugs and alcohol, you know, not this little kiddie stuff that the bike racers do these days, but man, the rock and roll scene was pretty ugly back in the 70s. So, you know, the mountain biking really saved me. So that team and how many years? So Volvo Cannondale team. team, yep. So I went in there and this is, these are just priceless. Here's the story here. Tinker comes up to me and says, Gravy, can't we just paint my Klein? These Cannondales <laughs> suck. <laughs> can't we just paint my Klein? I said, Tinker, did you cash the check? He said, check? Yeah, your paycheck. Did you cash your paycheck, Tink? He said, well, yeah. I said, no, Tink, you can't paint your Klein, you know. You got to race the Cannondale, bro. That's the deal. <gasps> he says, <gasps> and then Allison Sidor, who came off of uh, the Kahlua Road Race, Olympic Road Race Mecca. She's Allison Sidor, shit. She's going, God, these things are junk. These old Delta Vs or whatever they had back then. These are junk. So, you know, I was talking about how I had to go talk to Parker. Now you had to go talk to Cannondale. You know, my, to, our racers need better bikes. I had to go talk to fucking Cannondale. Yeah, you're like, we need so better they bikes. they flew me there, right, in their own private jet, right? The, the president of Cannondale is flying this jet, Big Joe. His own jet, this Cessna Citation Zero. They're flying you to tell them that their bikes suck? They're flying me to have what they call a mechanic factory liaison meeting. Oh, that's much more professional. Yeah, so technical liaison was my was my job function at that So time. in a sense, Ted King owes his job to you as well, because he rides <laughs> Cannondale and they make amazing bikes now. <laughs> well, <laughs> right? So, Ted, you listening? <laughs> that's, that's pretty funny, but the mountain bike regard i will say that i went into their factory you know after they put me in this new england little cottage hotel and here's your own little volvo to drive (laughs) and i'd never driven a turbo volvo so where where, where were they they based out of they were based out of connecticut at the time and they also had their big their big factory in uh, pennsylvania so um so i walk in and I go, nobody wants to ride your bikes. Nobody wants to race your bikes. You don't have a downhill bike. And your cross-country bikes, these guys don't want. We have the Cactus Cup coming up in spring. This is now fall, winter, right? Snow's on the ground. I said, and nobody wants to ride your bikes. They're shit. Boom. Mic drop. <laughs> right? So I'm like, oh, man. So they... They did the scariest possible thing they could do to somebody come in spouting like that. So, all right, hotshot, what do you want? Said, oh, what do we want? Uh, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. Exactly what we want. Anything? Said, we just bought Magic Motorcycle. We could make airplanes if we wanted. What do you want? Give me an angle. Tell us. Of course, I was totally unprepared. And essentially, for that. that's what they were hiring you for in the first place. Right. So this difficult step. They were asking for right. that feedback from the athletes without asking them. Right. In a sense, right? Right. 
I mean, they were paying them to succeed, and now they had the right. budget to do that. So what did you come up with? So I told them, look, we, you know, you can't have all these convoluted cantilever dropouts. You got to have simple triangles. Got to use the lightest possible tubing, lightest possible tubing you can use. It's got to be stiff as hell. The suspension's got to work. Can't you know the suspension of old didn't work all that well? So oh, the head. Also, yeah. well, no. Before that, even before Manitou that. shocks, okay. right, or rock shocks, you had to rebuild them all. The didn't time. you guys actually race when they had the fork integrated suspension? We for a did, while? And, a, and Cannondale still to this day has a head shock. They call it, and that hadn't come out yet. So none of this technology they had was, they, they talked about it, you know, putting it in the, and we're all like, in the head tube, can't you just put a rock shock on there, you know, and XTR and call it good, you know, but, you know, we didn't have that option. So we worked with them and worked with every single racer for exactly what frame size they wanted exactly the head angles tinker had this thing that the head shock suspension was so tall in the front that he had this negative drop stem they made for him they made him a whole size run of stems in five mil increments in a briefcase pick which one is going to work for you five mil with angle and length and everything and he's finally found one that's perfect he actually used that same stem he would take off have it repainted for new bikes because there was something about that stem it was a magic stem and he had to have it and he used that stem for the same stem for and years that's back when stems when they just opened they did the whole clamp off the top yeah. you have to take this the the uh, shifters and everything off first to slide. Oh, yeah, right? you, you know, no face plates. Yeah. Face plate was a yeah, nice yeah, move. Very, by the way. very big move. That's another old WTB innovation. And actually. so, did they get Steve their bikes Potts. on time and did it pay off? So, um, in the end, um, we had all our photo shoots, we had everything for the big team and the big debut. And then I had to get my drive my truck driver's license because they bought the hugest truck you can drive without a kingpin right the huge commercial truck volvo right 40 feet long 38 feet long put the dualies and the every oh no right so i being a hippie kid right have never owned a car Right until I turned fifty-two years old, never. So you hadn't even really driven, let alone driven a truck. Right, let alone driven a right. truck. And the owner of Team Sports that owned the team said to me, "You know, Gravy, you got to get your truck driver's license, dude." And I said, "What?" He said, "You have to get your truck driver's license. There's no ifs on this. This is our truck. You got to drive it." I said, oh, my God. So then I had to take a truck driving class, right? But then I had to get a truck to drive the thing in. So I rented this U-Haul state. What do you mean? You had to get a truck to take your test? To take the test. So what did you drive? And a U-Haul? Like, and I'm like, but how am I going to get it without a license? Right? <laughs> Enter Otis Guy. Otis Guy, being a fireman, has every known license, known demand to drive anything, half-track, tank, truck, fire truck, back-end fire truck. He could drive it all. <laughs> so he rented me the truck, 
in in Marin to take this truck driving class to to take the test finally how did you practice before the test i just read and you know i just that's you all you didn't practice driving before there was the test. nothing well just, he, he cuz you don't the, like rent he Otis brought the truck to the DMV right and there's my instructor and i hop in and the guy tells me i'm in marin county okay hop in we're going to oakland right <laughs> which is across the Bay Bridge and I mean the Richmond Serafell Bridge and and like major highway and go to the city now go to this building now back up into this thing in Oakland and I'm like oh my god so the pressure was on because the truck I was to drive was already waiting at the Cactus Cup race for me to drive full of bikes that needed to be built that weren't built yet including wheels, right? So the team, team owner, Tom Schuler, no pressure, goes, Gravy, you have to get that test and you have to pass it because you got to be on the plane <laughs> at 3 p.m. Get your tools ready. So I pass the test. I hop on the plane. I fly to Scottsdale, Arizona, and we built bikes for four days straight. Right up until the Cactus Cup race, they had this little fat tire crit. You know, you race yeah. road slicks on your mountain bike round and round. Right up building wheels, right up to the event, pumping tires right up to the start. And Allison went and won the race, first race. Boom. That's insane. And then, like, I'm sure, like, Miles, one expert, cross-country is a downhiller, one expert. So all the other downhillers on the other teams, like Lopes and Cullinan and Jurgen, oh, now we got to race cross-country to look kind of cool, too, because Miles just schooled everybody, you know? And, And then, like... We couldn't do no wrong. We won the Kamikaze that year. We won the World Championships that year. We went from boxes in a truck to the World Championship jersey at the end of the year with Allison and Missy both. And Miles got second. And and uh, I just I just never forget just bawling my head off when I heard that Missy freaking Giovi was world champion in Vail. I just could What do you attribute that to? You're talking Jimmy teaching her how to steer. She didn't have a background in bike, but she just... Skiing. Oh, she was a skier. She's used okay. to hurling herself down mountains at okay. high speeds with no brakes. Gotcha. Okay, so she had a, she a downhill background. She rode her mountain bike background. off a ski jump once. There's another Missy story. Um, she didn't land so well, but she went for it. <laughs> I don't know anybody else who would do that, but that's missing. That's so, insane. So, you know, I, I was able to call the manager who hired me at Sausalito Cyclery. I was able to make a cold call him up, dude. Brad, what are you doing? He says, oh, I don't know. I said, oh, you working? He's like, yeah, kind of. I said, oh, you want to meet me in Scottsdale today? And help me build bikes? And he saw, huh? <laughs> I said, no, Brad, serious. So he literally left that day to come help me, toured with me for the rest of the year. And I got to call my other buddy, Tommy Mack, who you might have met at Marin, Tommy McIntyre, another dear friend of mine. And I got to call up him, hey, dude, you want to tour the world with Brad and I? So then we got to go all through Europe, the high school buddies 
on someone else's dime driving turbo Volvos off of un, un, you can't even pronounce the name of the passes that we did because we'd look for obscure passes through the Spliegenhorgen or whatever and we'd go from you know Munich to you know some other place you know that Hans Hork knows about or something and 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 it was so great having like your best friends with you around the world right and I'm sure you kind of feel because I know you do some trips abroad isn't it cool having friends abroad like absolutely 100% to go new places but to be doing what you love so your connection with other people is around your passion right and there's no fear because you got all your friends you're willing to just go do crazier stuff and let's go eat in some unknown crazy bar in Munich you know I remember the guy's Pointing to cigar stains that were older than we were. Oh, that stain up there. <laughs> you know, there's bullet holes everywhere from the war. And, right. and you know, and to get to tour like that um, with friends and to be winning at the same time. Tinker went on to win national champ, his first national championship he ever won. Beat Tomac that year. Huge rivalry. Here I was wrenching against with Tinker against Tomac. Right. But Tomac was a Yeti guy. Right. Oh, you know, and it was the stakes were high, man. And Tinker won in Big Bear in front of his whole family. There was not a dry eye in the whole place. Everyone was crying. I remember reading because Tinker was a legend, right? So we were racing at the same time, but he was obviously being Tinker. Um but with his BMX background and, and his work ethic, right? Of like, I remember reading an article once where he said- To this day. That he would like, if he figured if this was going to be his job and people work eight hours a day, he was going to train eight hours a day. That's exactly he probably eventually right. scaled it down. But like that idea, like I will work as hard as people working in the trades or whatever at this, at this sport. No, and his, you know, him and his mom, Rose, Rose and Tinker Juarez, they're a team. You know, because early days when you're talking BMX, it was Rose who nicknamed, you know, uh, Tinker, Tinker. It was actually Stinker, but it shortened Instead to Tinker. Of David, yeah. Because, um, you know, they would, he'd be constantly messing with his bike because he never had a good sponsor. And Rose would come up to the Yeti truck before I worked for Tinker, asking me if he could help, if I could help his son, her son. And I said... Who, well, who's your son? <laughs> oh, it's, it's here. Come over here, Tink. And I'm like, I know him, right? And she's like, yeah, he's got a real problem with his bike. Can you help him, please? And I'm like, yes. So I helped. The thing about Yeti is we, we helped so many racers from other teams. I was just reading some off. We helped Julie Furtado at our team and Rishi Graywall. They are both race for GT at the right. time. They would come over and do little secret tune-ups. <laughs> come on, Greg, just look at my brakes, dude. You know, and all this stuff. And it was such an honor. Like you said, like, well, what did I get out of it? Well, when Missy won the world championships and Tinker won the national championships and Miles ended up, I uh, wasn't his mechanic at the time, but he was ended up being world champion. You know, it's, it, it was it's crazy. You're playing, you're playing a part in something that's, that's bigger that's bigger than you, you know? I mean, if you, you connect it to the music, like with your dad, right? If you have someone who's building their guitars or right. putting the sound system right. together exactly. and they kill the concert, like no one knows who built the amp or <laughs> right. who did the sound for it, right? <laughs> right, right. But if it works, right. 
No, and, and that's they, what you were doing. Yeah, or that effect you were looking for that pulled off, or that certain light effect, or you know, pyrotechnics. You didn't talk about days. Schwinn. Where does Schwinn fit into this? So after? okay, so yeah, so Yeti that didn't last forever. No, so Yeti didn't last forever. Went to Volvo Cannondale, and they wanted me to move back to Waukesha, Wisconsin, with the rest of the team all Ooh, year. Wisconsin, hmm. back behind the cheddar curtain. for the cheese. Yeah, behind the cheddar curtain, I called it. And uh, and it's. I said, dude, there's warmer places in the world. You don't have to live in the ice planet half the they year. They wanted people there year-round? Their Team Sports Incorporated um, ran multiple race teams. Uh, the Rollerblade team. They did a volleyball team. They did uh, the Saturn Road team. They did a Volvo Cannondale team. And right across the street from us was the Motorola team and Jim Alkowitz team with Lance and all those really? people right across the street. Oh, because of track, yeah. Well, okay. well, no, but this is Waukesha, Wisconsin. Wait. So Jim is from Wisconsin. So his main, Jim Alkowitz, the Motorola guy, mm-hmm. um, was from Wisconsin, and Schuler and, and Jim were good buddies. So Schuler rented a place next to Motorola, and this cul-de-sac was like... The premier racing in North America was one cul-de-sac in Wisconsin. You know, it was it was crazy, and but they wanted me to move there full time because now everybody was racing. They got these international racers. They had they split up. The biggest reason, I think, for mountain biking kind of losing its luster that it had. Right, you were talking about the big money of the '90s. It was it was big money. We had TV guys were getting six figure salaries. Everybody was happy. But then they started splitting up the race courses, where downhillers had their own venue, and then the cross country guys had a different venue. And for the whole time, it was all the same venue. You'd race Mammoth, there'd be a cross country, there'd be a downhill, but same week, same venue, same event. They started to split it up and diversify, and it's still to this day, it kept diversifying into Enduros and, and you know, uh, short tracks and, you know, all this different kind of stuff. But in, during my day, it was all one yeah. huge venue. It was one tribal stomp. Yeah. You know, we'd all come together. Yeah, I've never been a big uh, <clears throat> expo person, you know, and so I was, you know, the early years of, of Sea Otter doing that. It was a great course, and I wasn't a little bigger than I was used to, but you can kind of camp in the woods. But I did like, I'd race cross-country, and then you could watch dual slalom. Yeah. Then they tried the four-cross for a while. The idea Even that, that you And then there was cyclocross, and there yeah. was road. The idea that, like, this discipline with the commonalities over... Overlapping, yeah, and and I would say that kind of planted the seed in a sense of like, you know, for the for the hoppers for me of the evolution, you know, doing the early days of mountain biking and did some of the Norba stuff and be, mostly it was it was the traveling, but part of it was being a road cyclist, riding my cross bikes, riding the mountain bikes, like wanting to create a series where to be the best was over a long period of time on a bunch of different bikes. And to really bother people, if you're a mountain biker, you're annoyed, annoyed by this course. If you're a road biker, you're, you're annoyed by this course. Right. And I really didn't care, right? right? right it right. wasn't a business model. It was just like, hey, who's going to be the best rider right. at, at, at the end of that? And I don't know if the riders realize that you've been out, like now they'll know when you when they come to you, Saul Hopper coming up. When Gravy's working on your bike, I was like, he's doing some magic, right? So 
We're actually up at your place. You know, when you say here, you were you were talking about stories in Tam, and you're not there now. You're up. In, you've moved north, and you're in I Fort Bragg have, now. I have. I've moved out of the promised land, my homeland of West Marin, to up to beautiful Mendocino County, just north of Fort Bragg, California. Uh, just opposite the beach of McCarricker Beach here. I can walk to the beach from my house. And it, it reminds me so much of the Marin that is, is no longer. Marin has gentrified and changed drastically. Money's moved in. Everything's more expensive down there. There's so many people down there. You can't ride nearly as carefree and footloose as you used to be able to. And because of just the people, and you have to be, you know, be conscious of that. You know, with population growth will come the need to simmer down. But up here in Mendo, baby, it's all the, it's still fresh to me. <laughs> it's still fresh. You, have, you bought some property where the dogs can yeah, run. The dogs can. You can. You can buy an acre a, a mile from the ocean. Yes, and uh, <laughs> you couldn't do that in in uh, in uh, Stinson, could you? And I was so just enamored of the fact that the local cyclists here, the Mendocino cyclists, are so hardcore wonderful that they have improved these trails to world-class status. They work, the whole crew works once a month on a trail. It could maybe just be half the trail that they work on. But my God, the trails up here are like, I don't know. It's like riding through a Zen garden or something. It's just crazy. It's so... Yeah, I, so I describe nice. it to people. I mean, again, you have the Mendocino Coast Cyclists. They've done incredible work incredible up here. Work. And and everything within the state park as well is is multi-use and, and open to bikes. Yeah. I, I When I describe people who haven't ridden it before, imagine the best illegal trails in Santa Cruz right. and Marin. Yeah. Those are all legal to ride. Right. Your mountain bikes and um, right, and part of it it's it's not just um, a utopia in the sense, but there's less population density, right? And the history of it, you know, like Manly Gulch, you know, built by motorcyclists, yeah, <laughs> that's still still multi-use. But I'm happy that it's your home because I've been coming north uh, on a more on a more regular basis and. Yes. Um, yeah, from my dad used to take me up here when I was a kid, and it was like it seemed like days away, you know, when I was a kid. And um, then my w wife and I, you know, were up here, and then you know, on our one of our romantic getaways up here, I said, "Wow, I really like it up here. I think I could live here." And I swear, it wasn't long after that she found us a place. We had to look for a while, but, you know, it really, having the trails so close, having the ocean so close, you know, it's all the fauna and flora is the same as Marin, pretty much. Um, you can't was, go west. You can't go west. But if no. you go north, you yeah. got, I mean, I was just did the USAW loop yesterday yeah, yeah. from Westport. Love it. South, you've got all the stuff to the Jackson. Yeah. East, if you know the secrets, there's there's good options there in Sherwood. Oh, and it's, it's gravel heaven. It's here. good. And, you know, which is no, no, uh, no, um, what I'm trying to say, it's no real reason why you, you didn't come up here. It's like, this is the promised land for cycling. And, 
you know, it's uh, God's gift, really, to cyclists up here. I take all my friends up here. One trail we did, just single track trail, Sweet Pea, right? It's pretty mellow, right? But coming down, it has its flowy goodness, you know? But it's miles and miles long. It's as long as Eldridge Grade is long on Mount Tam. It's just this one trail. So by the end of the it's day... It's long enough, it's tiring. I think I might go ride yeah, that today, By the right? end of the day, my friends were like hell if that wasn't the best ride I ever did in my life. And these are my, my homies from Marin. But at Marin, it's, the trails are pretty beat up. They're not entirely legal, some of them. So you can't like do miles long trails anywhere. And you know, it's just a real eye opener for me moving up here. And you know, it's... Um, yeah, and a plug for people. I mean, Mendocino Coast Cyclists, I mean, uh, please join um, and join their email list. They're having regular trail days, and now that COVID's Just over, inviting people yesterday. to come, and uh, they're out there more, more than monthly, as well as, you know, collaborating, working with working with the state parks. So, Grave, we're going to segue a little bit right now, and, and I, this is going to be the longest interview. I already warned you guys about okay, that, but I'm we're going to... No, no, don't so be let sorry. Me, let me just interject real quick. So, Volvo Cannondale was of quite the run. Okay, ended, sorry, back to the stories. Yeah, It go. ended with the World Championships run there at Volvo Cannondale. And then they wanted me to move back to Waukesha and from, from Bolinas. I was in Bo at the time. Yeah, we were just talking about that. Sorry, yeah. how do we get carried away? Back to yeah. the gravy story of so Volvo. So then um, I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't move to Wisconsin. I just, I live in freaking Bolinas, <laughs> you know? It's warm here all year. I swim in the ocean. I, 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 I ride silly. It's wacky here, you know? And I cannot move there. It's concrete. It's ugly. So I didn't, and I quit. And then I went to work for a bike shop again, just to get. So you quit retail. before I had another offer. You're just like, I can't do this. I can't and we'll see do what this. I got a kid. I just can't do this. So I stop, and then John Parker, of all people at Yeti, flies to my house in Bow, knocks on my door. I had no idea. I hear this gravy. Open the door. Oh, sorry, sorry, my dog's going crazy. So Gravy opened the door. It's Parker. I'm like, Big John, what the hell are you doing here? I said, he goes, son, I think Schwinn's going to buy Yeti. And the Schwinn team and the Yeti team, they hate each other now. And it's just bad blood and, and we need you back. And I said, what? Because no, we work for Yeti, but I really need we need to take down the wall between Schwinn and Yeti because we're going to be the same. They're going to buy us out. Linda, John's wife, and I were going to sell. I said, "What? You're going to sell Yeti to Schwinn?" And I know Richard Schwinn through Parker too. And I'm all, "Well, okay, you know." Like he goes, "In this time, we'll." probably give you more money than we did last time <laughs> probably i said parker i'm sitting here without a job dude i'm in right <laughs> so i get back on the plane uh, i get to work out of bolinas i kept all the team trucks in bow uh, i had the local kids building bmx pump track around my place i had the schwinn flags flying high and then we went on to win everything at schwinn toyota 
RAV4 mountain bike racing team. I got to work for Steve Larson. I got to work for guys like their BMX dudes, like the Foster Brothers. I never worked for them and, you know, ever. I got to get, you know, work for Jurgen. I never worked for him. He ended up being the the uh, World Cup winner that year. I mean, it just, get, ah, and then the roll kept happening. And then another year it kept happening. Oh, and then they wanted me to move to Boulder, where Schwinn was. And then, sorry, can't leave Bolinas. You know, would you want to leave Bolinas? No. Okay, so I'm sorry. So I, I actually stopped then. It was 99, no, 98. I stopped then and uh, got another job in a shop, you know, living just a normal life again, normal life of a roving bike mechanic. And then my other buddy calls me up, says, oh, we're putting together a team with this guy, Colin Bailey, I was talking about earlier, is now a mechanic for Giant. A couple other guys, and Troy Lee and Renthal, and I'm starting a team. Gravy, my good buddy Dan Girardi, rest in peace, says, said, Dan? He used to race for Yeti. Uh, backstory. He started racing at 50, podiumed every race he entered, podiumed every race he entered if he didn't win it outright as a downhiller. 50-year-old downhiller racing masters and just killed it. National champion, all this stuff. Big Dan Girardi. So he started a race team because he was dying of cancer. And his friend... Maggie, he said, Maggie's the man, right? Maggie bankrolled this whole team for Dan to go out with. So he got all of his friends together, me included, as the mechanic. All his buddies raced for him. Troy Lee sponsored him, rent that we had of the pimp and trucks and everything. And Maggie owns every other billboard in the country, so she's loaded. She let Big Dan live at his, her mansion in Malibu. He's getting all these funky treatments for cancer in Germany because he couldn't even do it here. And then Big Dan passed away. And then I walked away. That was 1999. That was your last team. That was my last pro team. Was Danger Unlimited. Dan, D-A-N, Girardi, G-E-R, Danger Unlimited. And, you know, he left. I did a big send-off at Mammoth Forum at the races. I took the microphone over when he passed. Said, oh, there's been a disturbance in the force. And, you know, and we all gave him a rouse all the way up the mountain. Cheered for Big Dan on his way out. And I just couldn't do it anymore after that. Racing had changed. The lifestyle had changed. God, the road had changed. It turned into 100,000 miles a year. It was just crazy. It was awesome, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat with a different life, with a new body. I would do it all over again. I really would, Mick. That's sweet. Well, we love having you at the Hoppers, you know, and uh, still trying to just... A little bit bigger, but put some down-home events with, with soul on and plenty hard and a lot, lot of exploration. I know we love talking about trails and roads. and Well, and how I wouldn't let you have this party without me, right? I think I met you. You were still a Gianni little grom. Uh, yeah, I live in Occidental where your dad would play every Occidental Friday night at Negri's. There was a certain race there called the Ring of Fire that Tom Ritchie could probably tell you a little more about that All race. All right, right. Uh, Ritchie's Face, I think, is the tree's name. And um, 
And that my, was a hell of a party. And, and my dad played that show. Your dad played. And my dad played, his band played the Ring of Fire mountain bike race. And I think you raced that race. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, that's part of the that's crew. That's when that I just first like, met you and your Gianni, yeah. the whole crowd. Yeah, there. yeah. That's why with, with the hoppers, just freaking go for it and, and it'll all and it'll all work out let's let's cruise around so we're gonna keep this podcast going on forever for those who are still keep tuning in go go get your second you, go get your you. go get your third beer we're gonna walk around and uh just look at bikes so in the bike shop right now you have all marin bikes and there's a reason for that right yes. so after schwinn toyota i went on to work for bike shops and then I heard that Marin Bikes, the wonderful Marin Bikes, um, needed someone to work in their warehouse doing mechanic work for real money and a real job and, like, benefits and 40-hour weeks. And I've been with them for 12 years now and wrenched for all their racers. And and I'm still doing basic just customer service now, but... You know, like I said, I heard you were doing these events up here, and I just love being at mountain bike races, and there's not many events up here, and I just wouldn't let you have these events without me being there. So, <laughs> so thank you. So we're going by my bikes here. Um, we can look at the wall. There's a clock I made out of Missy Giovi's Mammoth Mountain winning chain ring. It's a 60-tooth chain ring, one for each minute on the clock. So that's pretty rad. It's also the top team. We'll be doing a video uh, interview next time so you guys can be seeing all these things. That's we'll have the to top do this team. Next. Yeah, right. Team 90 was Team Tam. We got the top team award back then. So, so we're go- walking by my e-bike, my cross-country bike. My townie, your now gravel my bike, gravel bike, your drop bar cross my country wonderful bike, headlands, uh, Marin Carbon oh, gravel bike, which is just so sick. I just love it to death. So you haven't kept all your bikes, but you've kept now a lot. Going into another room, I got about fifty wheels hanging on the roof um, from some current builds, some not so current builds, some antique. Your Schwinn Racing poster. I got my Schwinn Racing flag up there. Fly your freak flag high. Used to bring that to Reggae on the River, and I'd know where my tent was. <laughs> there's my Schwinn flag. Yeah. And there's your Cannondale BMX. You said there's Campy on there. Campy uh, hubs. Yeah, this is a 24-inch Campy BMX bike. I got my old tough neck back from the day uh, holding the handlebars on. But these are campy BMX cranks. These are blue campy new Beauties. new old stock. Beauties. That I've been offered like 500 bucks. Look at the brand cranks. new XTR V-brake in the rear too. Yeah, it's a beauty. So this I built for my daughter back at Cannondale. And uh, they donated this to her. And my daughter outgrew it. My son learned how to ride on it. Now he's outgrown it. Now we just pedal it around because it's a 24-inch BMX bike. How could right, you know? I know. So the tandem. So, yep, I got my uh, other full Sussmer in here. But next to it is my Steve Potts tandem. This is bikes raced Whiskey Town. I raced Rock Hoppers. I've raced the Tam Hill Climb. I had the Tam Hill Climb record for over 10 years on this bike at 50 minutes flat 50 minutes 19 seconds the mount tamalpais road hill climb on my mountain bike was slicks 
And uh, another Steve Potts drop bar. Uh, yes, it's a Steve Potts drop bar. It's wonderful. With the noodle, the, oh, noodle, yeah. the noodle stem. Oh, that's called an LD stem, short for limp dick. Yes. Yes, it's an LD stem. I got them on both my bikes. I was one of the first proponents of drop bar off-roading um, before anybody. Um, these are 80s bikes, so I've had these raced. This is my race bike here. Raced this uh, drop bar since the 80s, and the tandem as well. Both of these bikes, the Steve Potts bikes, are fully set up for touring yeah. too. Like do, you, do you find it uh, comical, or are you just totally wise in this argument of like who started gravel and gravel racing? This 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 phenomenon of it because. There, of course, there's some things new about it, but in terms of the bike, and we can, like, a bike that can do everything with drop bars is is not new. So, what is what is this push to to call it? Well, what something is different? New, what is new is the geometries mm-hmm. and the technologies. So, like, um, you know, you can go past my Steve Potts bike is the Charlie Cunningham cyclocross bike. Now, that is pretty much a harbinger for gravel bikes to come. It's super lightweight. It's got drop bars, got tire clearance, got really good brakes, and got and has good gearing. But what is happening now with gravel is and the wheel choice sizes, wheel size choices, excuse me, um, you can do the 650 fat tire, or you could do a 700c skinny tire in the same bike. We didn't have those Both options. Both my bikes have that. Right, absolutely. and that's an yeah. amazing option. And like mine, I can run a, a two-inch knobby 29er tire in my road bike now, which is like I used to do on my mountain bikes, but those were, you know, 26-inch and stuff. And the cyclocross bike, my older one, wouldn't take that size tire. So now you can fit the wide tires. They also have the short chain stays with a bunch of gearing so they can run one bys if they want or even two by and have gobs of gearing. And you know, face it, there's so many more people on the road these days that it's pretty dangerous on the road. So you can't blame people for wanting to get off-road. Right. And bless your soul for taking on old Kaz all these years <laughs> that they know how rad yeah. it can be. Yeah. It's and, not you know, just a road. And, I, and I'm a little devil's advocate on this, but, but I mean, I really believe in one of the, the, the huge draw to getting off the road. And there's a socialness of, I mean, I grew up also road riding in Sonoma County, which is amazing, riding to a breast, riding in groups that you don't get when you ride up Tam and then down Tam, right? Mm-hmm. You're shredding. On these long gravel rides, off-roads, you don't have the cars, you can ride to a breast. You don't need to have, you can, but you don't need to have that uh, desire to super send it downhill all the time. There's a lot of riders into gravel who, enjoy the downhills but they're not driven by adrenaline like we are and you have these bikes that are so capable that um you know it really you you can have these options at any given point like when we started doing king ridge which was mostly a road ride and we dropped into salt point right we were all on road bikes exactly and you could do it so i also give you know i haven't talked to tom yet but you know his thing is like every every bike's a gravel bike it's like you can ride any bike on gravel but can you really ride confidently you're not going to flat you have the tires you have the geometry you have the braking and so those guys have said we've always had these bikes 
I'd it's, say yes and no. It, I'd say definitely yes and no, and mostly no. Because, you know, like my headlands out there, my my gravel Marin bike, it can fit a huge knobby tire on there. And, you know, on my road, like a road And you could bike, put 30 pounds on it. So it's like or the, less, first, right? it's it, the yeah. first real kind of jack-of-all-trades bike that really kind of is a jack-of-all-trades bike. You know, it's except for the drop bar. But as you can see, most, a lot of my bikes off-road, it, they don't scare me. You know, if I was downhilling, yeah, I'd want to be a little further away and I wouldn't want drop bars. But yeah, and you could send 650, 650Bs with 2.0. You can get a dropper yeah. seat post on it. Well, like I said, I can even fit 2.0 on my yeah. 700C on my right. gravel bike. So it's, it's really proved to be that one bike ultra capable bike that it's like blurs the lines. And I think, it's, you know, that's what we you know you know long long been looking for in a bike and i i you know n plus one is great we always like new bikes and minus one isn't so bad when you can simplify and i mean let's face it many people can't afford one of these nice bikes let alone um you, I know, have, you know multiple so being able to do everything on over it, 10 bikes myself. you know and then so it comes down to like i've always i got into biking you know when i left team sports with my mountain bike, but yeah. also sold my car. And for me, it's always been essential that it's transportation. It's a way right. of simplifying and slowing down our lifestyle, being able to ride, and these bikes can do it all. Well, Look like at- I said, I didn't own a car until I was in my 50s. I never had a car registered in my name. I rode every... Doesn't mean you didn't drive one. No, I got paid <laughs> to drive them. It was so ironic I had to get a truck. Now, why do you have so many frames hanging on your wall? Well, you, you just, yeah, we can And what size there. are you? People can... people can. Uh, you can message well, him on Instagram. I'm six foot three, and I ride a 60 centimeter... He's got a lot of bikes for road, frame, road frames for sale. So I... No. If you want rim brakes and... I have... <laughs> yeah, I have a ton of old bikes. That's the curse is you never can sell your old bikes because they are always kind of work into you but I, I have a bunch of old Marin road frames Stelvio road frames hanging because when our company got bought they weren't interested in any, keeping any of the old old memorabilia and I sure was so I kept a few frames that were my size to build up in the retro style for those roadie events or I can go to Sea Otter and pull out my old retro campy you know Stelvio Marin with the Italian paint job and stuff so uh, great we've talked I mean we've walked we're f- talking about bikes here we almost tripped over my 1938 Wards Hawthorne oh that's the one this has that's been, it this has been down Mount over 10,000. And has it been broken and put back together? No, it hasn't been broken. Um, it has been reinforced a little bit. Um, the front fork is a redo. That's a 50s front fork. This frame is 1938, Ward's Hawthorne, um, named after Jim Hawthorne, who's an aeronautical engineer, to try and uh, beat the Excelsior, the Swin Excelsior, which everybody had. So this. Um, Did you ever get the race repack? No, only spectated. Mm. And I got to spectate. Uh, one year where Mark Slate from WTB and Matt Hubbard from Rim Tours, uh, they both worked for WTB at the time, raced an older Steve Potts tandem down Repack. And that is the reason I have my Steve Potts tandem to this day, because that is just a ton of fun. I've been over, I've been close to 70 miles an hour on this thing, That's and insane. it is just incredible. I just rebought. Uh 
we had an Uncle Fester, an Ibis, nice. for a long time and sold it, and I regretted it, and I found one during COVID. No way. So I bought back that. a drop bar, 26-inch rim brake, but <laughs> rim brake tandem? Yeah. You can't stop. No. You can barely it's slow a, down. It's a suggestion. It's a suggestion. <laughs> I mean, I mean, come on. Well, this the the pots I have here, the pots tandem. Steve and Mark actually were so nice to regrind the cams for me. So I have custom cams on my my rim brakes. So these actually will skid the tire at any speed. They're really strong. I'll, I'll need to talk to you about upgrading that. So that's, yeah, the bike started all as the Wards. 38, you know, it looks like an old Schwinn. I got the two old Schwins up on the wall that I'm going to restore in my older age. I got all those Stelvio road frames you're saying hanging, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six of them. <laughs> road frames hanging. How bad is that? Okay, so we talked about the Canon. So we've so Gray, we've gone from like day one up into the present. Uh, and what you're you know, you're in your you got your home here in Fort Bragg. Yes. What's you know what's next for Grave? The the obviously it looks like more like you're gonna be focusing on building projects, but what's <laughs> what but what do we have for you coming down in well, the in the in the near future? Well besides the honeydews, um you know, I'm just getting over some medical issues now. And like we were talking about, I tore my kneecap off walking the dog and I got an e-bike. And my gosh, you know, I it probably halved my recovery time. And the mental, just to be able to ride again, even though I couldn't really barely walk, was like, it just saved me. So, you know, for me now, I think it's going to be more about activism and helping out the Mendocino cyclists, my local, you know, help out locally. You know, think globally, but act locally, ride locally. And, uh, and you know, I, I really, why I fall for your events so hard is this is exactly what I would do. <laughs> I would bring all my friends out into places they haven't been, out of their comfort zone, make them race for it so they remember it, <laughs> you know. And, you know, like I've been bringing my friends out here, up here. I'm like, yeah, you've ridden Marin your whole life. Time to come up into Mendo where we, you know, I could take you on the Sherwood Road right from town and <laughs> just blow your mind on the gravel road just right away, you know. Or, you know... A lot of things, but I don't see myself being a race mechanic anymore unless it's your event. I don't think anyone's going to come <laughs> knock on your door and pull you away from, from where so you're that's, at So that's a big pull for your event? Is, you can actually see uh, me pull wrenches at an event. That's right. Um, because I really I want to promote cycling up here, and your style of cycling is the best because it's ecotourism at its finest. You're, you're showing people a place that they might love in the future. They might protect it in the future. They might come up here again and spend a buck, you know, at the store, at the hotel, or, you know, at the campsite or whatever. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I, I kind of think I retired first in my life and got to slack free range style as a hippie kid in the hills living you know the life the simple life 
and now I'm, you know, I've been working really hard. <laughs> like, I got you this, bought a house. I got the you house. You bought a house, now. bro, that needed work. The two yep. dogs and, you know, trying to get fit again after a major injury. You know, it's, it's really the simple things now. So I love to just go on my solo ride. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll stop endless. I'll watch the waves. I'll watch the trees. Up here's a lot of trees. Um, you know, we have swimming holes here that we can swim in legally. Marin, it's all illegal now. All, all the all the reservoirs, right, all right. the creeks. You can't even bring your dog in the creek anymore. You know, for for good reason because there's a million freaking people there. But you know, here it's like I could swim anywhere. I could, you know, it's real freedom. You know, again for me because it kind of was closing in on me back home. I knew every trail like the back of my hand. I do not know every trail up here. Not to say the least, I know 1% of the trails here. And God, that's a great feeling. You know, like, what am I going to find? I don't know. Let's go. You know, that's, that's a wonderful feeling. Um, showing my wife some of this outdoor stuff. Like, she's, she's not an outdoor person per se, but she comes out and camps with me now, and we have campfire outside the house, and it's just so nice being up here. So I see, I see me, you know, a lot of domestic duty in my life, <laughs> but uh, I think more just touring, eco kind of touring in the area, helping out local stuff. Like I know I'll probably help out the local high school kids once I'm done with the housework here and or the uh, the Indian reservations, go out there and stoke the kids some bikes or something, you know, just to mentor them or something with bikes. Kind of like trips for kids, but, you know, up here. I, I have no doubt your your hands will stay busy, Grave. Congratulations on, you know, where you're at right now. It's a beautiful place. Thanks for helping out the hoppers, and we'll see you again soon. Yeah, and, a couple uh, weeks, we'll be there. You know, really, thanks, you, thanks for your time on the interview and sharing your stories. And uh, here's to making new, more stories. Thanks, Mick. You're welcome anytime. <laughs>